Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. You've got to love the news business. Consider these two headlines this morning, one in Bloomberg and one in the South China Morning Post. From the Post, Occupy a Danger to Property Market. From Bloomberg, Hong Kong buyers queue for homes after prices plunge. So we'll get to the bottom of that divergence there on our air today. And we'll also be talking about this. The Democratic Party backs away from an Occupy call for later this month. And HSBC backs away a little over its reasons for downgrading the Hong Kong stock market, that being Occupy Central. First, a tease of what's to come. The trigger point for occupying Central would be a signal from the government, whether it's this government here or in Beijing, that all the avenues for universal suffrage are closed. So that's why we're saying that they backed away a little bit, because that's Democratic Party Chair Emily Lau saying that they would not preempt, but they would wait to see what the government proposal will be on universal suffrage. Back on Sunday, she had hinted that the party might move first. And our second little tease. In a separate quarterly report on Asian equities, the bank added several reasons for the downgrade. Concerns over the Occupy Central movement now sit at the bottom of its new list of reasons. That is our reporter Maggie Ho. Maggie's full report about HSBC backing away a little from the main call of Occupy as the reason that they downgraded the Hong Kong stock market. Also in the news, volatility is back as the VIX jumps 20% in two days. Alcoa beats the street in the first big U.S. earnings this quarter. And Jack Liu tells his hosts in China the PBOC should disclose when and why it intervenes in currency markets. In our featured segments this morning. Alicia Weston from the New Economics Foundation will join us from the United Kingdom. We'll be discussing a new model of public housing. We'll also speak with former legislator Fred Lee on how the model might work in Hong Kong. Francis Lun from Geosecurities will weigh in on markets and Angelina Draper, our tech correspondent, will be telling us why staycations are gaining currency in Hong Kong. We hope to get the Asian markets for you in just a few moments, but let's go to that HSBC report. HSBC has toned down its reasons for cutting its rating on the Hong Kong stock market. It first cited the Occupy Central movement as the only reason for the downgrade. It now cites other reasons, as we hear from RTHK's Maggie Ho. In a separate quarterly report on Asian equities, the bank added several reasons for the downgrade. Concerns over the Occupy Central movement now sit at the bottom of its new list of reasons. On the top of the list are the usual issues, such as the risk of a weak housing market, potential slowdown in mainland tourist arrivals, U.S. interest rates and weak earnings momentum. The bank also backed up its decision to downgrade the Hong Kong market from neutral to underweight by saying the local market lacks possible catalysts. It said the proposed cross-trading with the Shanghai market looks positive, but could take some time to come true. Despite its bleak assessment of the outlook on the local market, the bank is still projecting that the benchmark Hang Seng Index will hit 25,000 level later this year. The Nikkei is down 127 points in early trading at 15,187. In Australia, we see selling as well. The index down about a fifth of a percent. And in Seoul, the Kospi is down nine points. That's a drop of about a half a percent for the day. And looking at currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 101.47 yen. So that's the dollar a little weaker against the yen. Usually that's a pretty bad sign for the Japanese equity market. And so we do see it down. And the euro is now at 1.3617 U.S. dollar. 
dollars, while the Australian dollar is up over 94 cents at 94.11 cents. Well, Bloomberg is running a story about feverish interest in buying homes here. Uh, in a story that is headlined on its website today, it kind of retells the story last month that thousands of people waited, crammed into the Fortune Metropolis Mall to get their number. And on a large elevated screens, cheers went up when the numbers flashed, indicating who the lucky ticket holders would be in the crowd. People had paid $150,000 to enter a lottery for apartments at City Point. That's a seven-tower development from Kong. About uh, 5,000 buyers, so 5,000 buyers were there vying for just 442 units. It's interesting to contrast that with the SCMP's top story today. This is the, the top story on the front page. It cites a Barclays report that Occupy Central could trigger a big slump in Hong Kong's property market. We'll be speaking about that in just a few minutes with Francis Lun, the CEO of Geo Securities. But let me get to a little bit of news flow from Wall Street before we get to uh, Mr. Lun. Alcoa kicked off the earnings season with a strong report. The company had profit of 18 cents a share compared to estimates of 12. Revenue also came in ahead of expectations. Here's Bloomberg's Julie Hyman. There has been a rise in the price of aluminum. There's also a differential between, there's a delay in delivery of aluminum that has been advantageous to Alcoa. Alcoa has also been sort of doubling down in the um, engineered products. In other words, the stuff you make from aluminum and has been trying to reduce its reliance on raw aluminum itself. So that has uh, has been relatively successful for the company. So again, 18 cents a share in profit compared to estimates of 12. J.P. Morgan's James Liu says manufacturing is picking up globally. I think the numbers recently from China in terms of manufacturing and some other emerging markets, they actually look quite positive. Uh, they're hovering around somewhere around the expansionary level, uh, maybe slightly accelerating. Uh, but in Europe, I mean, they're accelerating quite nicely in most countries. Mm -hmm. There's some weakness in France and Greece, but that's offset by Spain, Italy, um, and Ireland. So I think around the world, manufacturing is actually looking really good. In the United States, you know, the PMI index is at 57 right now. Really, really spectacular stuff. And looking at markets that uh, investors like, columnist Barry Ritholtz says Europe is a good bet. You could buy high-quality European stocks much cheaper than the United States, and you could buy high-quality emerging market stocks even cheaper than Europe. So that's Barry Ritholtz. Uh, and looking at Wall Street, stocks did extend the sell-off. The Nasdaq down the most in a couple of months. Citigroup cited investor concerns for a severe pullback. The S&P 500 was down 0.7% in 1963. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 117 points to 16,906. The Russell 2000 Index, which is an index of small companies, was down 1.2%. And the Nasdaq was off 1.4%. So the sell-off in tech and biotech that we saw back in March and April seems to be back on the front burner. Some houses have brought in their estimates on when interest rates would start to go up by the U.S. Federal Reserve. Employment is getting better. We think that we're getting closer to full employment with each month, and we think we're closer to full employment than the Fed does. Um, but either way, because it's difficult for economists to agree on where full employment is, we know that with each passing month, the labor market indicators are getting better. Uh, but for Janet Yellen, it's not quite good enough. That is Ellen Zentner from Morgan Stanley. She says even with those comments, it doesn't necessarily mean that rates will go up sooner than expected. Um, that 
employment report last week was stellar. Who wouldn't love that report? But at the same time, we have to ask ourselves, is the better incoming data simply in line with the Fed's expectations, or is this something beyond what the Fed has expected? The Fed has been telling us, in order to raise rates in mid-2015, we expect much stronger growth in the second half of this year and beyond, 3% or better. And so the better incoming data may just simply be in line with that expectation. Okay. And just because conditions are coming in line with your expectations isn't a reason to change your forecast. But it does mean that the bond market is going to pressure the front end of the yield curve. Short-term interest rates will probably rise because that better data will tell some market participants that the Fed may raise rates sooner than they've been communicating. Very good morning to you. 12 minutes after 8 o'clock, we get to our discussion about public and private housing at about 20 minutes after the hour. But first, let's welcome Francis Lund, CEO of Geosecurities, to the program. Francis, good, good morning. Good morning. So just on that late, latest point, does yep. some houses like Goldman Sachs and others have pulled forward their their um, notions of when the Fed might raise interest rates. Yeah. Uh, but Ellen Zentner was then saying, uh, don't necessarily uh, <laughs> expect that because uh, the Fed has been calling for a big pickup in the second half of the year. What do you think? When will we see interest rates on the rise? I think uh, it will be in the second half of uh, 2015. I think it's not earlier than that. I think uh, Janet Yellen has uh, a much better uh, uh, pulse on the economy than the most economists and and the economic indicators indicate. Uh, despite the stellar employment report, uh, the the jobs that have been created are mostly uh, part-time jobs or low-paying jobs. You have to look at another figure, which is the uh, the uh, average income of Americans earned. Actually, they hardly increased the past few years. So uh, what you have is the high-paying Wall Street jobs disappear and replaced with a low-income McDonald's jobs. So what, what we have is really a downgrade of jobs all over America. So that is really what uh, Janet Yellen is pointing at, that uh, we need a full-scale recovery. We need to create more high-paying jobs before we can increase interest rates. Yes, and the Fed has made the point, uh, in particular, uh, Janet Yellen has made the point that they'll want to see uh, quite a lot of proof uh, that, yeah. that wages are picking up, that growth is picking up, and they'll tolerate a little higher inflation before they actually pull the trigger. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's, in a sense, that's giving uh, workers a little bit of payback since they've slugged it out pretty in a pretty mm. difficult fashion the past seven or eight years. They've had only 2% wage growth. Yeah, that's and, right. you know, haven't really seen much of the recovery. And, yeah. yet, and yet stocks are at an all-time high. Do you think stocks are overvalued? Then? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> because uh, 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 you look at Germany and, uh, uh, and New York, and they're saying we're quite high well, until two days ago, of course. And, uh, uh, but, but this is uh, 2014. It's not like 2008 where uh, economies around the world are picking up uh, pulled by the spectacular growth of China. But China is growing about 7% now. So uh, Europe hardly grows at all. And you have America well, growing a negative 3.1% in the first half, maybe uh, 2 or 3% in the second half. So you don't have spectacular economic growth uh, globally. So uh, And yet you have a bull run in uh, Germany and uh, America for the yeah, last yeah. Five had, years. Uh, the DAX up over 10,000, uh, the Dow yeah. up over 17,000. Mm. As you say now, a couple of days uh, pulling 
back. Uh, one way to have made money uh, over the past uh, four or five years is to buy on the dips. Is yeah. this a dip that you'd buy, or is this the final, the, the sort of one that leads into a bear market or a, a big healthy correction? Well, I don't see a bear market coming because uh, I think uh, after the 2008 and all those uh, landmines that uh, will shock the economies be gone, and I don't see any crisis, uh, financial crisis coming. So, so I think the the, the stock markets in uh, in Europe, America will keep humming along, reaching new highs months month after month. Now we're in a little bit of a parallel universe here. Yeah. Um, we haven't um, come close. No, we're to in separate highs. universe. Yes, we haven't we grew at all in the last five years. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in China <laughs> too. So, so that's um, that that is something that um, you know uh. maybe we could play some catch up. Uh, yeah. It's also hanging out there, Occupy Central. Yeah. And you notice that HSBC pulled well, back a little bit from its call <laughs> and, and um, Emily Lau pulled back a little bit from saying yeah. we might actually preempt uh, the release of, mm-hmm. of the, um, you know, the data from the consultation on universal suffrage. Uh, mm-hmm. Are people getting nervous about Occupy Central? Yeah, definitely. People are a little bit nervous. But, but, but I think the uh, analysts who wrote the HSBC and the uh, Barclays reports are what you can call them cloudies. They live in the clouds. They they lost touch with uh, with the people on the ground. They haven't gone to the uh, uh, sales sites of uh, uh, new developments to look at people slapping houses like they're pancakes. So so I think uh, pe- uh, and and most analysts are earning too. Uh, too much a high salary that they live in penthouses divorced from reality so so the one thing you can do with this report is ignore them completely so yeah just just to <laughs> ignore um you know the worry about occupy central in your view just ignore that yeah just ignore them because well uh it will happen what, for under, sure under, it will happen but it, it will i mean happen. is your philosophy that you know there's it, it politics in every effect on the economy it won't affect the economony, and it at won't affect all, and it won't all. affect the stock market either. Not at all, because this is not like uh, t- uh, uh, 1967, where you have riots and you have bombs on the street, and that's what you call a uh, civil commotion or, or disturbance. That's w- that's where the housing market crashed for something like ten years. So you, you don't worry that some violence could erupt if police are trying to remove large numbers of. Of occupiers, I don't think so. I think uh, I think Hong Kong people are civilized enough to uh, to to avoid bloodshed. I, uh, I I don't even think the police will use tear gas like what they uh, like what they use in '67. So. Uh, Okay, let me ask you this. If you don't think that Occupy Central will affect the economy and it won't affect the market, mm. will, affect, will it affect the government's thinking? Do you think the government is now well, um, planning to come forward with a more liberal... Uh, uh, definitely uh, not. Not. I think, okay. I think from, from what uh, transpired in the past few years is that you have the radicalization of the two camps, the pro-establishment camp and the pro democracy camp. Uh, you, you have the Democratic Party losing support among the uh, voters. And, and, and then you have movement uh, uh, toward the extreme right on the establishment side. And I think uh, uh, what you see from uh, C.Y. Leung and uh, uh, position is that uh, don't you an inch 
I think that is really what the central government position is. Do not you an inch just stand. Does up. that leave you pessimistic or, yes, definitely. or still optimistic about the future? Pessimistic, definitely. Because uh, after 17 years, I think uh, Chinese government ha- is in no mood to grant uh, Hong Kong democracy. This is an honest and frank assessment. If that is the case, Francis, why doesn't it affect the market eventually? Well, and the market is controlled by pro-establishment business interests, but there's not still, controlled there's by a, the people. There's still investment that flows in. And it, do you think that, that Western investors will lose faith in Hong Kong's core values no, in the future? No, no, no. Well, uh, the one thing we still have is really press freedom, freedom of speech, but we don't have political freedom. And do you uh, think that we will continue to have an independent judiciary? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, uh, these are the two things we have, but uh, even with everything the tone, else we don't have. Even with the tone and the comments in the white paper issued by well, uh, the well, state council. Well, this is like what, uh, the analysts, uh, uh, HSBC and Barclays uh, uh, papers. You just ignore them. So I, f- I find it a little bit difficult to completely understand your position. Yeah. You think Occupy Central, in a sense, is no big deal. The economy mm. won't be affected. The market won't be affected. Yeah. Um, uh, and yet you're quite pessimistic about the future. If others are like you, then certainly there would be an effect. No, I don't think so because uh, Hong Kong has thrived the past uh, 150 years without democracy. I think the central government position is it will continue to thrive without democracy. I think that is the bottom line. Okay, so let's bring this back to um, you know, business and finance in a sense and uh, give me your best investment idea at the moment. I think last week we had you <laughs> on and, uh, and you mentioned uh, Dongfang Motor, didn't you? Yeah, and it went up quite nicely. Yes, and it did. then uh, today I'm going to uh, uh, suggest a, a new, uh, well, well, a new listing, which is the largest property developers uh, in China. China uh, Wanke, yeah. Two two o two. Yeah, two two o two. China, China Wanka or Vanke, as it's spelled, V A N K E. It also had a pretty nice pop after it was mentioned last week by another guest on the same show you were on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's and, right. uh, so, so you like the idea? Okay, Francis. Uh, uh, thanks very much uh, for, for joining us. Uh, Francis Lun is the CEO of Geo Securities. Now, I want to read a line from a recent. Um, uh, columnist comment uh, in the post, which will set up our next short interview. Our current public rental housing program is helping to reproduce poverty across generations against a background of sustained rising private property prices. It would seem obvious that a much better way for Hong Kong to provide subsidized housing is to shift to a scheme of renting with an option to purchase and removing the silly separation between home ownership and rental units. So that's a line from Richard Wong from Hong Kong University. And I'd like to welcome uh, to the program our next guest, and that is is Alicia Weston, who's head of economics and business policy with the New Economics Foundation. Ms. Weston, good morning. Good morning. So, good morning here as well. It's one thirty a.m. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much for <laughs> staying up late, uh, really beyond the call of duty. Um, no problem. I'd like to hear about some of your new ideas uh, for uh, public housing policy and how in Hong Kong we might be able to benefit from that. Well, I'm not that familiar with the system in Hong Kong, but I think we do have some similarities in the sense that we do have um, an increasing property price and it's increasingly unreachable for ordinary people. 
So um, this has become quite a situation in the UK with, with a generation of young people who are known as generation rent. Um, they will probably never be able to buy a property because property prices in the UK are now so high. So, um, so, so what is a new so, model? What is, what is your new model that will help? Well, we've, we've had social housing in this country for many years, and there, was, there were massive building programs in the 50s and 60s. And at that point, a lot of people lived in social housing, um, and you had quite a lot of um, working families and people like that living in social housing. But what has happened since, particularly since the Thatcher years, where they started to sell off the social housing, um, is we've got a lot less. So what happens is it's allocated very much on a needs basis. Um, which means that the most needy people get social housing and no one else does. And is there a long waiting list? There is a very long waiting list. The the problem you have with that situation is that you end up with a very ghettoized community where whole estates are full of people that, you know, either are not working or perhaps disabled in some way. Um, And it's very difficult in a very... um, um, uh, disadvantaged community to pull yourself out of that situation. And, and what is and the so, fix? What is the fix then? So the fix for, that, that we've come up with, um, that is being discussed quite a lot within um, local authorities and government here, is is a is a mixed community model. So one of the other issues that we have in the UK, which um, perhaps you have a little, little less worry about in in Hong Kong, is that um, the amount of money that subsidizes housing is um, is declining. So even to build new subsidized housing, I mean, it might sound obvious, but you can't build subsidized housing without a subsidy. And um, the amount of subsidy has declined quite significantly and is likely to disappear to nothing. I wouldn't be surprised. So um, what we've done is we have looked at a method which combines private rental with social rent um, in the same scheme. Now, this is probably really radical for Hong Kong, <laughs> um, but certainly in London and across much of the UK, it is really not that uncommon to be living next door to somebody in social housing, even if you own your own home. Okay, let me bring in Fred Lee, the former legislator and also formerly of the Long-Term Housing Strategy Steering Committee. Uh, Mr. Lee, thank you for joining us here on the program. It's good morning. Is that is that something that would be um, difficult to imagine, uh, a, a sort of combined setup like that, where people in public housing are living together with private rentals? Yeah, I, I think the Hong Kong context is quite unique. Uh, all I would say is pretty distinct because from private sectors is the private property for selling and then the public sector is for rental primarily now we have home ownership relaunch again after 10 years of suspension but still you know the private and the public are not really in fusion what i heard from miss weston in the uk example so um Maybe we have to discuss more whether maybe we can do have some reference on on part of it. I don't know. I think we need more discussion. Yeah, it's not something that's been widely done here. Um, that it definitely has to be pointed out. Um, it is something we believe we can do just because of the nature of, of, you know, our housing is not particularly in blocks of flats. It tends to be houses. So by the nature of ownership of houses, we have ended up, I, I, for instance, I live um, next door to social housing on both sides, but I own my own home. 
So, um, but we do believe we can manage blocks, which are what we call properly pepper-potted, which means that one unit will be um, social housing and the one next door will be market rent. And, and the basic concept behind the scheme is that rather than um, in the UK when you want to build a, um, a uh, when, when you want to build a development, um, you currently commit to a certain amount of social housing within that development and sometimes you would pay to have it off-site but effectively you would make a commitment that's quite fixed. Um, what we're doing effectively is the securitization of the land. So instead of specifying this fixed amount of social housing, which may even cause viability issues, um, we say that from this land, via the planning system, we will allow you to earn a certain amount of money. And um, in order to make up that income, you can have a mix of private rent and social rent, and you will have whatever proportion is required to make up that income. So if for instance, your market rents were to go down, you may actually need to have a higher proportion of market rent than you started with. What sort if your of market rents go up, then you would be able to use that excess income to subsidize more subsidized housing. What has been the reaction from developers to this model? Well, we have um, a lot of social housing providers here. So um, the social housing providers are developers themselves. Um, and so they are very interested in this because the, the financial benefits, my, my background is a financial background, and, and the financial benefits are, are really strong because in effectively securitizing this land, you then have a financial asset that you can sell the income stream from. And so the capital recycling that you can get if you, for instance, to sell this income stream to a pension fund, you'd be able to take the cash from the pension fund and build another one. So the and so you can just keep it's the velocity of money story really so developers build those housings and get the same market rent that's subsidized by the government right is that i'm I'm making a a way it's not a formal government subsidy the way it works is that it's it's what we call a semi-guaranteed income they they are allowed to make this income from the proportion of housing on the site so it's not a formal guarantee from the government, which certainly in the UK is a very important aspect of the scheme. Okay, I, I wonder if you could hold on for just a moment. Uh, we're coming up to the news here at 8.30, and we can continue with the discussion after the news. We'll also um, bring in um, uh, longer, in-depth stories uh, on the main stories in the news in the next half hour. If you're just joining us, uh, this is Money for Nothing. Uh, Backchat is taking a summer break, and we'll come back in September. So we have business and finance in the first half hour, and we have money and politics in the second half hour. And Backchat uh, will, as I mentioned, be back the first week in September, unless Occupy Central somehow starts in August, and then we would probably bring the program back first. Money for Nothing at 8.30. So just bring you up to date on the weather before we get to the news. Mainly cloudy with a few showers and isolated thunderstorms today. Visibility will be low, very hot conditions. Sunshine expected uh, for much of the day today in between the uh, showers. And the outlook for the next couple of days, hot and sunny. Again, the maximum temperature today should be 33 degrees.
Yeah, we'll get to the money a little bit later uh, in the second half of the program. But first, a news update. Here's Samantha Butler. The vice chairwoman of the Democratic Party, Emily Lau, says she believes chances are very slim that the government will come up with a political reform proposal that doesn't include any screening mechanism for chief executive candidates. She was speaking to RTHK after a meeting of party leaders where it was decided the party would devote all its resources and manpower to the Occupy Central campaign to push for universal suffrage. She said the plan to blockade streets in Central could go ahead any time over the next three months community should be able to have genuine choice. So that would be the test. And I hope the government's report, which may be published next week, will not try to block that. And then, of course, the very big day is the decision by the National People's Congress Standing Committee, which may may meet at the, in the last week of August. And after that, uh, they will announce their decision. And uh, people are very worried that the MPC will come out and, you know, make all sorts of declarations, uh, making people feel that uh, universal suffrage is not going to be achieved. Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 20 people in Gaza, including civilians, at the start of a major offensive. Palestinian officials say a local leader of the militant group Islamic Jihad was killed when his home in Beit Hanun in northern Gaza was bombed. Earlier, Palestinian militants fired rockets deep into Israel, targeting Haifa, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. The Israeli Defense Minister Moshe Alon says Israel will do whatever it takes to stop the rockets being launched. We are now in a situation in which Hamas is provoking and launching rockets against Israeli civilians. This is the nature of Hamas. To use their civilians as human shield and to uh, target deliberately our civilians. We can't tolerate it. So by one way or another, we are going to stop Hamas. South Korean military officials say North Korea has fired two rockets into waters off its eastern coast. They say they believe the projectiles were short-range missiles but gave no further details. North Korea has conducted several missile tests since the beginning of the year. You're listening to the news on RTHK. We'll get to the funny money a little bit later, and uh, but we wanted to talk about a funny result, or at least a surprisingly uh, crazy result in football. The Brazilian president Dilma Rousseff has expressed her deep sadness and sorrow at Brazil's seven to one humiliation by Germany in the World Cup in the semi-final. She put out her reaction in a tweet shortly after the game, perhaps wanting to head off any violent reaction following Brazil's heaviest defeat ever. The BBC's Matthew Kenyon was at the game. It is hard to overestimate the disappointment and, I suspect, in some circles, anger about the level of Brazil's humiliation here in Belo Horizonte today. It was a terrible, terrible performance, and there will be an awful lot of soul-searching in this country about what has come to pass, because this is a record defeat as far as Brazil are concerned. It's a record defeat as far as a World Cup semi-final is concerned. That's absolutely certain. Uh, They were woeful from start to finish, and uh, to hear booze 
ringing out around half time in a World Cup semi-final when you are the host nation must be hugely dispiriting. I can tell you that the striker Fred took most of the anger during the game. He took huge amounts of abuse. There were also abusive chants made against the uh, president of the country, Dilma Rousseff, uh, which echoed those that uh, were made during the protests against the World Cup in the build-up to this tournament. And uh, it certainly will be of a concern uh, to the authorities here how people react to this defeat and whether uh, in some way it sparks again some more anger about the hosting of the World Cup because it's certainly true that that has gone very quiet over the last few weeks as Brazil have continued to progress to the last four. Matthew Kenyon reporting. Here's the reaction of our World Cup football commentator Danny Hicks to the game. Just when you think you've seen it all in football, um, this World Cup comes up with something special again. Um, yeah, hard to describe. Germany, 5-0 up in 29 minutes. Four goals in six minutes in a, in a first-half spell. Brazil, Brazil simply fell apart. Um, 7-1, Brazil's biggest defeat in their entire footballing history. And this is the greatest nation in the, in the history of international football. Miroslav Klose scoring his 16th World Cup goal for Germany, beating Ronaldo of Brazil's all-time record. Um, the records just kept tumbling and Brazil fell from from grace in the most spectacular fashion. Um, hard to put a finger on what went wrong, but I think we, we touched on it yesterday morning that the mm. loss of Thiago Silva to suspension for Brazil might be more significant than the loss of uh, the playmaker Neymar. And I think it proves so. Thiago, for this World Cup, has been, has been the glue that's held that Brazil back four together. And it's not the greatest back four. They look very good going forward, but they get caught out of the back. But Thiago's been that, that kind of rock that's glued them together. And without him there, they simply fell apart. It may not be all doom and gloom for Brazil. Danny Hicks says that Brazil can look to Germany as an example of a country that has successfully rebuilt its football program after a crushing defeat. Defeats like this can either make or break a country and uh, you know, a lot of Brazilian players who played in the 1950 World Cup when they lost to Uruguay in the final were, still have never been allowed to forget that and some of these players I think will see the end of their international careers and I think Brazil have got to have a big rethink about that whole structure of football. It's interesting though, Germany got hammered 5-1 by England, you might remember, in a World Cup qualifier mm-hmm. uh, in 2000-2001. In and it forced a big rethink in German football, and look how they've come back. <laughs> Since then, they've reached four World Cup semi-finals in a row. They're in the final uh, of this one, and um, you know they look unstoppable now. So maybe you know Brazil go through a similar sort of uh, rethinking and uh, reworking of their game pattern as Germany had to when they had a big humiliation at home. Then right. well, they see it may be a good thing for Brazilian football because really they have they've never touched the heights of the, the sort of 1970 and 1982 teams, even in winning in '94. In 2002, they've never played the great football that we associate with Brazil sides, and uh, you know I think a big, uh, a big bit of soul searching is coming up for them. Danny Hicks, uh, AFP's uh, Sports Direct editor, who is also covering the World Cup for RTHK. Well, here's how markets are moving now. Before we get back to our discussion about housing here in Hong Kong, the Nikkei is down 125 points. Uh, that's a, a drop of eight tenths of one percent at 15,189. In Australia, the main index is down 36 points, a drop of two thirds of a percent. Similar losses in Seoul. Gold trading at $1,319.40 an ounce, and oil prices $108. 
$12.88. So we've seen oil come down from $115 to $108 in about the past 10 days. We're joined on the program by Alicia Weston, Economics and Business Policy with the New Economics Foundation, and Fred Lee, former legislator and also formerly of the Long-Term Housing Strategy Committee. We've been looking at a new model uh, with Ms. Weston. Her foundation uh, has been partnering with the Home Group on a new approach to affordable house building. The tenure of each side is flexible between social and market rents. It gives a defined income from a site, which means that it acts like a bond. Therefore, the risk of investing for large institutions is lower because their income is semi-guaranteed. Uh, Ms. Weston, thank you for staying up so late and being with us. Yeah, and, and, and Fred Lee, um, from what you've been hearing from Alicia Weston, uh, is anything like that possible in Hong Kong? My first reaction is um, the, the, the developers in Hong Kong, all their purpose is build those private housing, uh, high-rise, of course, and then to sell them all as soon as possible. They never try to rent it out themselves. They want to sell all the flats because they want to cash in. And uh, that means a lot of money for those uh, developers. So um, this is the really what's happening now in Hong Kong, you know, property development. So the private sector's developers, uh, whether they will follow you know, what, uh, what Ms. Weston said, uh, to build those housing and then let some people move in and rent a flat, uh, social housing or, or private housing, is quite, uh, is quite different here. Yeah, we're not we're not looking particularly for private developers to do this, I although I think there are there are some that are interested, those that are more um, social leanings. Um, but we have these organisations like the Home Group that was mentioned um, that are non-profit making ones. They're almost quasi-government organisations, and I, I think from what little I know about Hong Kong social housing, that if this could be applied in Hong Kong, my suspicion is that it would perhaps be applied um, by government government construction um, and they may be able to flex the tenure between I remember you used to have something called sandwich housing yes yes and you, you may be able to flex it rather than between you know the really sort of high-end private market rent but through a, perhaps a kind of sandwich rent versus mm-hmm. a full social rent and, and that that might be a possibility for application in Hong Kong Fredly, what do you think um, would be the best way to fix the long waiting uh, line that we have for people to have access to public housing and the extremely high prices? What what do you see as a possible fix for Hong Kong so that ordinary people feel as though they can get a decent place to live? Uh, not too many options at the moment because of the low interest, low interest rate didn't really you know, check up the, all the speculations, or not not speculation at all, but uh, really a lot of people still can, uh, you know, look for private housing. Would you with, dump with the peg? The, with the low interest rate. Would you dump the peg? Yeah, but you see, but still, as you said, the queue, more than 200,000 families are on the queue, and the three years pledge, you know, for, to allocate our housing now is becomes more than a dream. And so the only option now left for the government is to find more and more land, and but unfortunately face a lot of opposition to build the public rental housing together with the home ownership. 
what I meant, what we mentioned, sandwich housing. We did have some sandwich housing in the past provided by the housing society. That's a non-government agency, but non-profit making as well. And they built those uh, high-rise property for a, a bit higher quality than the home ownership scheme built by the housing authority. That's the government uh, department, and the housing society aim at uh, a bit higher income group because they still can't afford to buy the property in the private market. So they build somewhere in between. That's what we call a sandwich. Uh, Housing, but not for rental as well. It's all you know to sell up to those yeah. uh, eligible families. In in the UK, that has been the model that the um, housing associations have been operating. Is mm-hmm. that given that there's very limited government subsidy, they have been doing exactly this. They've been developing sites and they've been selling off the bulk of the units and trying to use that profit to subsidise the few social housing units that they're able to put on the site. But in using this scheme. Um, they should actually be able to keep um, part of that. um, Instead of selling off the private side, they could keep it for private rent. And there is an issue in the UK, and I suspect this is the case in Hong Kong too, around the quality of the private rented sector. Um, And and they they certainly feel that it's part of their mission, their social mission, to actually um, be part of um, improving the tenure, improving the conditions as well in the private rented sector. So in managing the whole site as an entity with a with a defined income that comes from that site, they're able to keep it in the rental market instead of selling it off for home ownership. I see. Maybe maybe the Urban Renewal Authority, we call the URA, mm-hmm. that that's also a, a non-government you know, authority, but mm-hmm. uh, they did receive a, a ten billion uh, loan from the government for urban renewal, you know, to demolish the old building in the urban area to build a new one. But so far, it's only, you know, for inviting developers to bid for the, you know, for the developing rights. But I think what Ms. Weston mentioned, ULA can perform such kind of role. If the government did subsidize ULA a bit more rather than giving them a loan, and I think the, 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 the rental issues, I think, can be solved. I think so. The only authority in Hong Kong can maybe may borrow the example of what Miss Weston is coming up, you know, in UK. I think URA. Maybe we can explore yeah. the option. Ms. Weston, just a final question to you. Uh, is there any likelihood that um, the scheme that you have devised there will be adopted um, on a widespread basis? We're in discussions at the moment with the Greater London Authority um, and a selection of these um, these housing associations. Um, we are definitely getting their home group that you mentioned is the fourth largest housing association in the country. They are very interested in pursuing this. Um, we've the, the housing associations are becoming quite tight for finance, and I think that will drive the adoption of this because yeah. it, this will give them the ability to access index-linked finance with a lot less risk, and that is a lot cheaper for them. Okay, well, best of luck, and again, thank you for staying up so late. I know it's after one thirty there, and uh, we really appreciate it, and we'll hope to have you back. 
Alicia Weston, Economics and Business Policy with the New Economics Foundation. And Fred Lee, thank you very much for joining thank us you. here on Money for thank Nothing. You, the time is now 14 minutes before 9 o'clock, and this is Money for Nothing. Special feature on staycations coming up in just a few short minutes. But first, we'll get back to the news. The Democratic Party has pledged to devote all its resources and manpower to the Occupy Central campaign. But speaking after a meeting of party leaders last night, its chairman, Emily Lau, appeared to backtrack on her earlier warning that the party might launch the civil disobedience movement this month or perhaps next. RTHK's Mike Weeks asked Ms. Lau if that meant that her party was now going to at least wait until after the government puts forward its proposals on the 2017 election. The trigger point uh, for active consideration of occupying central is the government, whether it's here or in Beijing, if they release information which shows that they have completely rejected the Hong Kong people's demand for genuine universal suffrage. I think that would really uh, anger a lot of people. But in fact, the community's dissatisfaction is very high already. The the sense of dismay and uh, feeling of anger is a rich boiling point. So, uh, and uh, we are waiting, of course, for the government's report, which originally said would be released today. And now I don't know when, whether it's next week or the week after. But if that report tries to uh, ignore the people's demand, then I think you know, that would set alarm, bell, alarm bells ringing furiously. Okay, and well, what do you mean by the demand for genuine universal suffrage? What's the standard that you're taking on that? And that is, uh, it must uh, pass universe, uh, the international standards, uh, which means very simply that uh, the electoral method should not contain unreasonable restrictions and that would allow people, the voters, to have genuine choice in the election. And uh, so it is something that is very reasonable. I put it to the administration several weeks ago, and I don't think anybody would dispute that, whether you want to call it international standards or not. For a genuinely democratic election, it should give the voters a genuine choice. And what do you mean by that? You can have five candidates, but it's still no genuine choice, because you can have C.Y. Leung, you can have Carrie Lam, you can have um, Anthony Leung or Regina Yip, or Bernard Chan and and a few more. But they are all from the same camp. But people in the community should be able to have genuine choice. So that would be the test. And I hope the government's report, which may be published next week, will not try to block that. And then, of course, the very big day is the decision by the National People's Congress Standing Committee, which may may meet at the, in the last week of August, and after that, uh, they will announce their decision. And uh, m- people are very worried that the MPC will come out and, you know, make all sorts of declarations, uh, making people feel that uh, universal suffrage is not going to be achieved. And I think by then, you know, people will feel, what is the point of waiting another few months for the Hong Kong government then to produce an election package based on the MPC Standing Committee decision? So that's why these are the trigger points, which people will have to consider very carefully.
Emily Lau, the chairman of the Democratic Party, speaking earlier this morning on Hong Kong Today. The chairman of LegCo's House Committee, Andrew Leung, says the relationship between the legislature and the executive is at its lowest point ever. In his annual news conference, Mr. Leung urged the government to do its best to narrow the rift. He also criticized some legislators for abusing LegCo rules and procedures to stage filibusters. But he pointed out that in the past legislative year, government bills were often submitted to LegCo very late, giving councillors little time to scrutinize them. Filibustering of uh, a lot of the bill because uh, we never agree uh, which a consensus or at least, you know, uh, solve some of the part of the problem uh, before putting it uh, to a vote. So I think this relation uh, need to improve. Otherwise, you know, uh, the whole thing will get to a standstill. And that is Andrew Lung, the chairman of LegCo's House Committee. Well, the time is now eight and a half minutes before nine o'clock. Time for a feature. Staycation is one of those buzzwords that became popular following the 2008 global financial crisis when people had limited finances but still needed a vacation. So they stayed at home. To tell us more about what a staycation actually is and the options available in Hong Kong, here's Angelina Draper. It's summer. And for many of us, that means just one thing, holiday time. But if the idea of long airport layovers, jet lag and peak season airline ticket prices sounds dreadful, then a staycation might be just the right answer. The term, which combines the words stay and vacation, is increasingly being adopted by Hong Kongers who are discovering the variety of getaways available without boarding a plane. Expedia Hong Kong's marketing manager, Jun Tang, tells us more about the trend. The number of nights they book is usually one night or two nights, and they usually stay during weekend. And of course, during summer period, they um, there are more bookings um, staying on weekday as well. They prefer to do staycation just usually because they are not able to get a lot of holidays, so they can't travel abroad. That's why they prefer to have a holiday uh, in Hong Kong. Are hotels reacting to this demand? In other words, are they putting together special packages or special promotions for Hong Kongers? Uh, yes, we are actually seeing the trend. Um, during the summer period, it's actually a relatively lower season for Hong Kong hotel. So they, um, because they want to attract more Hong Kong citizens to stay in their hotels, so they usually push a lot of uh, family packages during summer period. So, um, for example, they will um, include breakfast or a meal to the package, so to increase the attractiveness to the local family. Are hotels happy to take last-minute reservations for these kinds of bookings? Yeah, of course the family can, or the Hong Kong people, they can usually, they can book last minute. But for the more popular hotels, I would say they are usually very full, um, say one to two months before. options Hong Kongers have for a staycation is to stay in a heritage hotel. I'm standing in the middle of the Heritage Lodge Hotel located only about six or seven minutes walk away from Mei Fu MTR station. This unique building which opened in January of this year has quite an interesting history spanning over 130 years. It used to be a psychiatric ward, a hospital, a prison, a labor camp and today is one of the city's newest 
heritage-listed hotels. I'm standing here amongst one of the five blocks with Ruby Wong, the sales and marketing manager of the hotel. Ruby, tell me a little bit about the lodge and why Hong Kongers choose to come here for a staycation. So um, the um, site is, uh, we got a very beautiful site here with the gross size of 32,000 square meters. And as you already mentioned before, we have over a hundred years history here. So um, typically we want to provide uh, the people a some special and unique accommodation experience here. So you can, um, to see, we got a very lovely rooftop because um, all the materials is old. Um, we got the Chinese pan and roll cloud tiles to make it different. People when they come here for a break, you were telling me earlier on, they stay on average about one night. Yeah. Um, what do they come looking for? They will come looking for, first of all, is oasis in urban area because um, the area here is um, accessibility, but uh, quiet. You can just um, can feel a piece of natural here, can smell the flowers and also hear the bird sound. And secondly, you can um, get some um, Chinese culture related experience here because we provide different kinds of free workshops and also exhibition. You also have an interesting dining experience, I believe. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, actually, because um, we got a restaurant named Jingo House, so um, the average um, age for the servant and chef, you can may say, is uh, about 65 years old, especially during the night time. Uh, so maybe during 7.30 to 9.30, they will provide live band service. So they sing while yes. they serve. Yes. People take holidays close to home for many different reasons, as Monica Wong, a regular Hong Kong staycationer, explains. Most of the times we go on our own, so this is our little getaway. So we like to be close to our boys, but yet we get some time alone. Is a staycation enough in your mind and your experience to give you the feeling of having gotten away and having had a break? It really depends what you're looking for. Um, if you want to get away from the city or if you just want a night out, um, or just to experience Hong Kong, really, because I've been here all my life and there are many places I've never been to. As the saying goes, sometimes a change is as good as a rest. And in Hong Kong, that change doesn't have to be very far. Angelina Draper, RTHK's technology reporter. And Angelina joins us in our studios. Very good morning to you. Good morning. There's, there's a lot that goes into putting together a feature like that, but there's a lot that has to be left out too. So I want to ask you about some of the uh, other interesting aspects. Uh, for instance, um, people getting together, renting rooms in Hong Kong, say for a TV event. <laughs> exactly. Actually, it was, it was, uh, I learned quite a bit doing this piece, um, especially we all know a lot of people in Hong Kong, Spain, is an issue in their apartments and when they want to get together with their friends and they want to say for example watch a football match I hear there are a few on at the moment um, um, especially during the night and so um, I was told that some groups of people were getting together and booking a hotel in Hong Kong just to get together and watch the football game in the middle of the night and so that they, they knew that they had a place um, 10, 15 of them could actually squeeze into a hotel and um, when I asked if uh, the hotels were happy with this apparently yes no problem business is business so 
from the investigation that you did, where do you think are some of the best places to go for a staycation in Hong Kong? Well, I would first of all, I would suggest um, definitely ask a very specific question, whether you're going through a travel agent or whether you're going directly to a hotel, ask if there are special offers for Hong Kong residents. There are some where you have to show your HKID to be to qualify. And uh, one, for instance, is the Grand Hyatt um, Ho, um, Hong Kong, which offers a great deal. It's called the 8 to 8. They allow you to check in early on a Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, check out late on a Sunday night at 8 o'clock, 8 p.m., which means you're actually getting two full days, but you're only booking one night. So these are some offers that are uh, especially for Hong Kongers, um, tailored to someone local. And um, other ideas could be you've got outdoor, you can um, go camping, for instance, you can stay in a luxurious, you can get a luxurious spa package. There really are different options. For, for most people doing it, are they trying to find a place to stay or are they staying at home and just going out for day trips in the, in the territory? There are both options. Um, there are some day packages as well. You can book some day rooms. and. Some are you allowed to call it a staycation if you actually sleep in your own bed? Technically, yes. I did actually <laughs> look that up. Um, yes, you can actually stay in your own bed. But um, what's interesting is that uh, people are even spending a little bit more than they might normally on a hotel room because they're not burdened with the price of a flight ticket. So they can afford to maybe go out and do that all out um, special occasion, whether it's an anniversary, whether it's just the need to get away. And why not book a room at the Ritz? Okay, Angelina, interesting uh, report. Thanks very much. Uh, Angelina Draper, who has uh, been interning with RTHK and is is uh, becoming our tech reporter and a feature there on staycations. Well, thanks for joining us uh, this morning on Money for Nothing. We'll just wrap up with market action, uh, mostly down red numbers across the screens. Losses about two-thirds to about four-fifths of one percent. Weather today mainly cloudy and looking for some showers. Isolated thunderstorms as well with low visibility and very hot conditions, 33 degrees as the high. The outlook for the next couple of days, hot with plenty of sunshine. This is Money for Nothing. The time is 9 o'clock.